Welcome to our podcast, Landed People, where we interview people who have ancestral and or professional ties to the land. I am Melissa Kamara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Charnick at the University of Hawaii, Cooperative Extension Service, Natural Resources and Environmental Management. As we say often on the show, the views and opinions expressed by us or by our guests don't reflect those of our employers or funders, just like to create an open space for people to share their stories. We would also ask that if you're enjoying what we're doing, please rate and review. I'm told that it helps people find the show. More importantly, we're just so interested to know always what you guys think. Drop a line, give us some stars. We'll just sit here. We're going to pause and um, wait for you all to come back. All right. Great. Thanks for <laughs> doing those uh, rate and reviews. Actually, what's fun is that we do get some people leaving comments. And just to tell you all how much we appreciate all of you folks that take the time to tell us what you think. We have some comments from folks. For example, Uncle Mika tells us that, quote, these buggers get them. Thanks. And he says, this podcast started out good and has only been getting better. I got nervous <laughs> when we first read it. It started out good. <laughs> and then what Mahalo, happened? Oh, but this is funny. It says Mahalo Nui Los. I think he means Mahalo Nui Loa is Mahalo Uncle Mika for that for that review. And also Thanks. Paul Kushaniski writes, such a great podcast honoring a legend of conservation in Hawaii. He's referring to the one that we did of Dr. Lloyd Loop. I really enjoyed mm. the podcast focus on professional and personal aspects of their subjects. So again, Mahalo, you guys. This week's interview. We finally made it to the ocean. <laughs> landed, <laughs> yes. landed people. We put our board shorts on and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talking about the, the marine environment. Finally. Yes. So we interviewed this time, Emily and Anne Fielding. Anne Fielding is um, a naturalist and she's originally from California. She moved over uh, actually with her kids and husband from the West Coast to Hawaii and specifically to Maui. Gosh, I want to say in the 60s, I think it was, she mentioned. And Emily is her daughter, who is likewise an extraordinary marine manager for the Nature Conservancy. She is the Hawaii Marine Conservation Director, and she has worked in many different capacities, everything from working with National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, helping with, I think, one of the, if not the largest marine monument in the Pacific and the world, Papa Hanau Mokuakea. She's really helped and been involved with community-based management on the shoreline throughout Hawaii and specifically in Maui. Yeah. A kind of realization of just nexus where people that care the most about these, the creatures that they're either eating, harvesting are the folks that are in the best position to kind of understand their ecology and really develop plans to take care of them. So it's, I think, something that they're trying to emulate terrestrially as well, community-based management, but it's really ahead of the curve. But that's the funny thing is we talk about marine conservation. Where do we end up at the end? We're back on the land. (laughs) (laughs) When you have a marine ecosystem, like it's, seems to me like there's like less options to directly intervene, right? There's, you can control take and you can manage like how much and that kind of thing. I mean, people are doing coral restoration and things like that, but it's a much more difficult system. Maybe that's the way to phrase it. And then all of these um, efforts are rich reef, this rich reef, everything. And it's, which is the way we need to be thinking about it. Yeah. 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 To what extent are we able to affect change on the mountain at a scale that 
actually affects or reduces those impacts? And I mean, that's obviously kind of a million dollar question, um, you know, among many. That is. Yeah. The land transformation thing is huge. Yeah. And the thing I'm taking away that is really front and center in my mind is when Emily talks about how working with communities is fully and totally a heart centered practice. Yeah. The people who want to care for and see fish and the opihi thrive and survive and continue on for generations, they're doing it for love. Yeah. Pure and simple. And it's led by that. And that those are the most successful. Yeah, that's what, what our whole thing's about here is just yeah. kind of like talking about those relationships because it's our relationships of these places and these these creatures, plants, all of it. And and then this is how that gets put into practice ultimately. Yes. So with that, let me introduce our next guests, Emily and Anne Fielding of the Nature Conservancy and of Maui. Well, welcome you two to our our program here. I guess I'll start off by asking maybe you, Anne, how you came to be here on Maui and what kind of experiences did you have? This is really for both of you, the uh, second part of the question, growing up um, that influenced the work that you do. Like so many of the people that you've talked to, people grow up with a love of nature. They grow up in a place where it's easy to access nature. And, and where I grew up, which was um, in a little town called Belmont, south of San Francisco. Mm. There was oak trees and the chaparral grass, and there was a stream below our house. And my sisters and I would always go out exploring. I liked getting pollywogs and then growing up them to be frogs. And my Mm -hmm. sister was an expert at snakes. There was only the um, rattlesnakes that were dangerous, and we knew what rattlesnakes were. So any other snake was fine, and so she'd get them and wrap them around her neck and bring them home. (sighs) And and our mother allowed it. See, there's a big thing. The parents have to allow tadpoles. They both sound fun. Yeah. (laughs) When I was about 10, we and another family had access to a cabin up in what is now the Point Reyes National Seashore in Northern California. So there's this bay there called Tamales Bay, and things would wash up. And I loved those things, and I was very (laughs) curious about them. What were they? How did they get there? And especially the uh, crabs. Every time I'd find something washed up on the beach, I wanted to have a context. I wanted to know mm-hmm. about its life, what it, where it had come from, who its relatives were. I always call myself a, more of a naturalist. And that was one reason I didn't wind up doing, I didn't go for a PhD because I had to, I would have to choose something. I would have to right. choose one thing to work on for four years. Right. And yeah. I was not able to do that. I, I loved it all. I wanted, I wanted to be with all of it. In high school, there was a, a scouting, like a Girl Scout program called Mariner Scouts. And it was teenage girls with boats and seamanship skills. And so our the troop that I joined had a 38-foot boat left over from World War II. Somebody taught us how to motor it, how to move it. I mm-hmm. became actually a, a skipper for that boat to take it on the inland waterways. And you'd go up to San Francisco Bay, and then you'd go up Sacramento oh, River. Cool. There was also a boys program called Sea Scouts. They were offering scuba diving, and it was the first time I'd heard about scuba diving. This was, wow. you know, like 57, 1957, something like that. I wanted to do it, but my mother did not give me permission to do that. But it really stayed with me my whole life. People in groups around the water, learning things, having fun. I went to San Jose State my first year, 
And I said, okay, I want to sign up for marine biology. And they said, "There's we don't have that here in 1959. And so I could sign up for um, life sciences. That year, there was a professor there who was organizing a, a trip down to Baja, California to study the intertidal life. But there was a couple of guys along on that trip who were spear fishermen, and they had masks and snorkels and fins with them, which I had never seen before. I got to put the mask on and look down in the water and see all this stuff I couldn't even imagine. And so that was just like the biggest moment in my life, to see under the water, especially in the tropics. So you're not just seeing rocks with kelp on them. It, it, there was life and sea fans. And these guys were saying, well, you, you've got to become a scuba diver. So I'm out of San Jose State and I'm down to Cal Poly. <laughs> and I signed up with a club and there was no formal training. In, <laughs> it was learned by doing scuba diving. Wow. Um, oh my God. Don't, get, don't get bent. Just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we actually, the president of our scuba club drowned on one of oh, our hours. Gosh. Oh, it was a wake up. And I just looked this up for context. You were exposed to scuba in 1957. It yeah. was in, patented in 1952. So this is like the beginning, <laughs> beginning of all of this stuff. Yeah. It wasn't until I got to Hawaii that I could actually take a formal class. Oh, okay. 10 years later. So at Cal Poly, I met Emily's dad, Mel, who was in the architecture department. Shortly thereafter, Emily was born in 1962. Oh, and then I had her brother, Brennan, and my sister had gone to Hawaii. Okay. And she and I had already been scuba diving off the coast of California. I suggested to Mel that we could move to Hawaii. I packed up our Volkswagen van with all our stuff. We bought a house in Kailua in 1972 for $24,000. Oh, my God. We bought the house, had it for two or three years. He found a boat of $27,000 for the boat. We put the house up for sale. The prices doubled. And so what we got for the house paid for the sailboat. Oh, wow. Can I ask you and your two children, Emily, you must have been little, were living on the boat? Yes. We moved onto the boat, I think, in 71. Because we sailed in 75. You were 12 when we went sailing. When we sailed to Tahiti, Emily was 12. And we lived on the boat from the time she was about, she was probably about nine. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. So you were, this is like your early, early experience, Emily. Yeah. Do you remember being like, uh, this is a great or just being like, what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think, you know, being a third grader in Kailua, Kainalu Elementary, yeah, moving away from my neighborhood and my friends was very traumatic for, yeah. About, yeah. for a little while and until I got used to boat life. And we had an amazing community in the Alawai Harbor. Mm-hmm. There was tons of liveaboard the mm-hmm. families and so so many kids and families it was really really fun and kind of we never looked back learned to surf and sailed among all the hawaiian islands right wow at the time working at the waikiki aquarium i had started an education program kind of field trip oriented and i was telling people in my classes and other guys that worked there about Ponape, and they said oh we want to go we want to go and so we just out of that, we made a trip. And then Bruce knew a guy in um, Palau who was doing agriculture on giant clams. And we went there. And Palau is like the best diving in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I continued that as a personal business. But mom, how did you get to Maui? After a couple of years, Mel and I divorced. So I got a call from Art Reed. He was one of my professors. And he said, would you like to teach science on Maui? 
And at first I said no, but one of the people I worked with at the aquarium, who was a mother of four, mm. she said, Annie, better take this. She said, you are a mother first and a biologist second. Mm. So I was shamed and I took the job. Head of the science department, with a, so it came with a salary, it came with housing, came with food, and came with free kids. So I only did it for two years, but Emily graduated from there. Oh. And Kay Kepler was living on Maui, and she introduced me to Bob, Abdi. So Bob and I were married. That And then Emily learned so much from Bob. Yeah. I went on to make my own business during educational field trips, both on Maui and internationally. Okay. Mm. Emily, you grew up then mostly on Oahu. Yeah, through my 11th year. So I think we, I was 16 when we moved to Maui. Okay. Yeah. And same, just like moving from Kailua to the boat, moving from Oahu to Maui just kind of it was a huge change, but just yeah. really never looked back. It was so, it was so wonderful to have just nature. Right. Mm -hmm. There were so few people on Maui at the time. And yeah. Surfing and swimming and snorkeling and exploring, hiking. And you said the people, the surfers didn't weren't mean to you on Maui. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of agro-ness to surfing on Oahu. It was very crowded. Yeah, there still yeah. is. <laughs> Especially that stretch right in front where you guys lived is a little renowned yeah, for that. It's a pretty pretty um, competitive sport. But on Maui, nobody yelled. At, there was no, no yelling, no fights. Yeah. <laughs> right. No attitude. Yeah. 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 They're definitely more relaxed. I don't know about now, but before anyway. That would have been what year? We moved in 79 and I graduated in 1980. Okay. Yeah. You have seen so many changes. I guess we'll get to that. But Emily, how did you how did you go into doing this as a career and you know, working in the ocean. Yeah, it was pretty serendipitous. I, I had another career prior to conservation. I went back to grad school and I had gotten a, a bachelor's degree at Cal Poly Pomona okay. in communications. I had started out in environmental economics and then mm -hmm. wound up kind of segueing because I had a lot of credits there. But in 2000, I went back to grad school at UH Manoa okay. in the geography department. At the time, oh. that was where you could focus on natural resource management. And that's what I wanted to go into. But I really felt like I needed to get up to speed on another what was happening in the field. So yeah, I had a great um, experience there. In 2003, I was graduating, I had done my thesis on the Kahikinui forest and mm -hmm. the devastation of goats on that forest. And that was the Bob Hobdy influence. I was going to say, <laughs> you could have gone one way or the other. You could have gone the other way completely. <laughs> he, he really loved that south slope of Haleakala and all the rare dry forest trees there. And I know, Melissa, you did a lot of work at Kanayo as well in your one of your last gigs. Mm -hmm. And then Alan Tom, who was the um, superintendent of the humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary was working on with the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands project that had just gotten designated by uh, President Clinton. Okay. And he said, had, had tracked me down from Franny Cooper Smith to my mom to me. Oh. And they said, I just had graduated with this degree in geography. Wouldn't I want to um, work for them, for NOAA? Oh. And I said, what? <laughs> and I eventually said yes, and it turned out to be a sanctuary 
designation assistant position on what was then to become the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Okay. And so I worked on sanctuary designation with that group under Alani Wilhelm for five years. Mm-hmm. What does that involve? I mean, because like, I think not being at all in the marine world, but sort of watching that unfold from afar, it was se- it mm-hmm. seemed like, wow, this is like the biggest protected area, I think, in the world. But also, though, and you're steeped in it because your mom. Yeah. <laughs> You're into it with your mom, but like, I have no idea what's behind the scenes for getting those designations and working with people. Can you sketch that out a little bit? Sure. I was completely green uh, going into that, but nobody knew what to do or how to do it. Right. There was a small group of us at the time and we were, we were tight. I came in at the, at the time where we were just working with public comments and the analysis of public comments, but the initial designation was a stroke of a pen, right? Mm -hmm. It was created, but with an executive order, I came in at the beginning of the process where they're trying to make it into a designation that had lasting results. And so we were trying to get it to have a sanctuary designation, there's a certain Mm. process for that. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the process was commandeered by the forces that wanted it to become immediately become a monument and have more immediate protection. Okay. And now I think they've turned a corner and they're back into a sanctuary designation process. The laws are stronger under the sanctuary laws. I see. Under the monument laws. Can you sketch out for um, for us like and our listeners just how big of an area we're talking about and what sanctuary designation actually means like in practical terms for people what you can and can't do in a place like that the area was huge i think it's you know it stretches if you put laid it across the united states it stress stretches you know from texas to california or something wow. it's it's a huge area from hawaii island all the way up to curie atoll i think it's uh, 1200 miles right the facts that stick with me are are that hawaii island is, is so um, geologically young at 500 thousand years old, right? Yeah. And you go all the way up to Curie Atoll, which is the northernmost atoll, and it's 30 million years old. Yeah, it's so That's crazy. Kind of <laughs> 583,000 square miles. Thank you. That's the, yeah, the monument. That's large. And it's, and it's grown since I worked on it. It had, it, it's grown out, it's gone out to the 200 uh, mile EEZ, right? Yeah. Okay. It says, yeah, when it was created, it was 140,000. Wow. I was the management plan coordinator and then Mm -hmm. eventually more on the constituent side, but I helped with the reserve advisory group, worked with the reserve advisory group and all the subcommittees of that fantastic group and that amazing time to create the management plan. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of meetings and a lot of talking (laughs) and (laughs) and documenting. I mean, just creating a a plan for that place from nothing and a lot, calling lots and lots of experts and lucky for me being fielding and my mom's daughter, mom knew most people in the marine field in Hawaii. And so I had, you know, a lot of connections I wouldn't have had otherwise Mm -hmm. because of that. And so, yeah, got to work with amazing people building that plan. My colleague was simultaneously building the EIS and, um, then I think in 2006, those documents were ready to go forward. It peppered in between all of this committee work and expert consultation work were the large public meetings. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of um, times where we'd go back out to the public, get all the comment, analyze that comment, incorporate that comment, and then go back out. So we were just getting ready to go back out for the like the final public review 
when the monument designation happened with a stroke of a pen from um, President Bush. I see. Okay. Wow. I have a question. And obviously you saw these changes happening while you're here, the the need to protect it, because I'm really curious, and maybe you can pass it back to your daughter about how you start gathering information about what, what do we do, right? In the sense of intervention and and protection, like what are the options on the table? It's such a huge area and it's such, you know, obviously a hard, was that already well in your kind of line of sight? For me, not North, not the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. I'd been to Midway mm-hmm. and it's oh so wonderful. So wonderful. Be- again, because of my background coming from a naturalist, it's not a conservationist. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's a different way. And I, I mm-hmm. appreciate it. And I, I learn the names of everything, but I don't know how to save it. Yeah, and I, it came up against yeah. that with Honolulu Bay. I tried Diane Shepard, and I tried to do something about the silt going into Honolulu Bay, mm-hmm. and we got no nobody. They mm-hmm. said, "Oh, there's not a problem. It's always been like that." <laughs> and so you just or or I used to work when Lingle was mayor. Diane and I worked on um, access shoreline access, talking to landowners about letting people come in and fish mm-hmm. and surf, mm-hmm. and we got nowhere. Yeah. So I kind of, I'm just so proud of Emily that she, it's a fight. All those meetings. Yeah, take that on. I mean, I just think about you know, Honolulu Bay and I just like dovetails with all this massive commercial development happening on Maui mm-hmm. in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's just like, it's ramping up so much. I don't have to tell you that. I, I guess mm-hmm. I sketch that out for people listening who don't know. And then at the same time, you're like, wait, we need to, we need to protect, you know, yeah. these places. Yeah, but to segue from mom's last comment, you know, her being a naturalist and a lover of nature and that's a really infectious way of being in the world and and so she spread that love of nature to all her students through the Waikiki Aquarium many of whom are are still in marine work Mm -hmm. science or or, or policy or otherwise when I'm in the intertidal areas or on the reef with my daughter or other people that I'm sharing that infectious enthusiasm Mm -hmm. Which is so important. You, you yeah. can't just go from straight to the problems. You you've got yeah. to love the places and the peep and the creatures and the mm-hmm. whole ecosystem first. Yeah, that that comes first. And so yeah. I was lucky to be able to um, get that part first before we had to start saving the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you used to do that in Hana when you were working out in Hana. Take. Mahana kids out in the tide pools. Yeah, but Hana kids, they've got their own uh, infectious enthusiasm, their own brand of that. Absolutely. They know so much already. Yeah, you're learning from them as much, right? Exactly. Kind of that tide pooling aspect. Not everybody is so enthusiastic about the intertidal environment, but I got to get into, uh, because of working in HANA, I got to get into Opihi conservation and management. And so was really blessed to spend a lot of time in Hawaiian intertidal environment, learning about that, sharing about it, helping advance community desires to better manage that fishery and that ecosystem. And the Limu. And the Limu, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's happening on Maui. That's like after. So the plan gets written 
you know, that work, which is massive for folks who have never done a management plan that <laughs> goes out for public review. We're, we're glad you did it. <laughs> well, that that's the thing in 2000. It's major. In 2007, when they when they said it's now a monument, everything was that then had to be changed from the sanctuary language into this monument language. And, and it was going to have to go out for another public review because oh, wow. it was a whole different designation. And that's mm-hmm. when I said, um, I thought five years was enough on that um, particular <laughs> task. And I was becoming really interested in the community-based managed line of I see. thinking about marine conservation that was really beginning to get more and more popular. And how do we actually manage the areas that were the people where all the people are, which is sometimes harder than where the people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I love to hear about that. We talked a little bit with Suzanne Case just when she was at DLNR, just a tiny, tiny bit about that. Maybe you could just tell us what that means, our listeners. Like, what does that designation mean? I mean, or how do you even approach um, some, something like that, you know, when you're involving people who live there? Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so in 2007, I got, I started working with the Nature Conservancy, left NOAA, and came into a small marine program led by Kim Hum at the time. And our primary strategy was community-based management. And that um, community-based management way of thinking came from really from Mac Poi Poi mm-hmm. out of Molokai, who's the, definitely the leader paving the way in Hawaii. And he was working with folks like Alan Friedlander, Daviana McGregor, Konoho Helm, his original bag boy. You know, they got that law, the the community-based subsistence fishing area law passed in 1994 and had to lobby, you know, for years before that to get that law passed. And so in 1994, Moomomi became that first CBSFA. um, But it had a sunset. It was so new and it was so different for Hawaii that Mm. it had a sunset clause built into it. Mm -hmm. And it sunsetted in two years. And I remember them lobbying and really trying to get it extended, trying to get the processes in place to allow it to be extended. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time, both the time and the area, it was a fairly small area at the time, and he, they just couldn't get any traction. And he was at the ledge and the and the BLNR constantly for, for years after that, really advocating for the need for this, this mm-hmm. need to be able to save the abundance of our marine life for Hawaiian subsistence practices that yeah. you know, the land that and the sea that feeds the people. And again, that's really the the beginnings of it for Hawaii. In the Pacific, yeah. there was a huge movement that really began in Fiji and that created about around um, centering conservation, marine conservation on in communities and helping communities to see clear gains in marine abundance. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it centered not just on biodiversity, like many conservation efforts in the past had with closed areas, like trying to create abundance from closed areas, which is uh, an effective strategy in certain cases. But in this mm-hmm. case, they wanted people's needs to be met. <laughs> right? right. Yeah. But more food. So uh, addressing food security and people's livelihoods and way of life, along with uh, marine conservation as one movement. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to um, have some very successful case studies come out of that Fiji effort. And then the word the word grew like wildfire. Everybody wanted a locally managed marine area. Mm-hmm. Right. And that really started this community-based management 
effort that grew across the Western Pacific. And it was in the same time frame as Hawaii's efforts. But really, those efforts don't meet until about 2000. Okay. okay. So Poipoi is working and others, Uncle Henry, and we're working on this in the 90s. So were they uh, in Fiji and the Western mm-hmm. Pacific. And then yeah. it sort of all meet when Manuel Mejia and John Parks kind of come back from that area of the world and to Hawaii and bring these concepts together and create that initial uh, network for Hawaii a community network. Right. And the research is growing alongside this, just showing that it can work. It's like, I know there's a really rich, like, you know, academic literature in that. Very much so. At the small scale, was what does it actually look like? Is it getting people together? Is it just amplifying what people want to do already? What a few folks recognize are threats and addressing those threats and helping to have, just facilitate the process. Like, are some doing it already and they just need more support, financial or otherwise? Yeah, it's a great question. So all across the Hawaiian Islands, there's communities that and, and individuals and families that care deeply about their places yeah. want to see them those marine resources improved and traditional cultural practices perpetuated. Mm-hmm. And that intersection where you can um, perpetuate Hawaiian fishing and management practices, yeah. right, in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more demand than there is support, right? Yeah. <laughs> and everybody has their different processes. So Haena finally got a CBSFA designation in 2015. Mm-hmm. Milo Lee was the next in 2022. And they had mm-hmm. been working on their designations for decades. Mm-hmm. And then Kipahulu. Just recently. Well, it's just passed by the land board um, last week. And so now it goes to the governor's desk. So it's their designation. Official designation is eminent, but not everybody wants to make that kind of investment in time of decades to be able to (laughs) have state rules. So I think there's a really wide breadth of possibilities and ways to reach those possibilities. So you could have just community-based management with no rules or no designations. That's just, I mean, code of conduct that's not backed by rules. I see. Okay. The other extreme of that is you could have just state rules and no community um, buy-in or engagement, right? Right. And then in between, there's this sweet spot called co-management. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that's where the, the state and the community can come together and create something that's strong and long-lasting with community engagement and leadership. Yeah. So with yeah. all the CBSFAs, there's a tremendous amount of community leadership and then this co-management aspect. Mm-hmm. But lots of our marine life conservation districts came from community engagement and involvement. For example, the Manele Hulupoe Marine Life Conservation District, that they invited the state to come in and help them to protect that area. There's all kinds of different ways marine management, how it looks across the state. And there's also another designation type called fisheries management area. What it looks like on the ground for a community, I can speak to the way I've gone about it in my work with the Nature Conservancy is they have to say that they're interested in in improved marine management. And then we can come, We if they want to do a, a planning process, we can come in with a community action planning process, which basically looks at what you want to conserve, what are the problems, uh, what's the status of those resources, and then what kind of strategies are going to affect the change. It's the basic framework. There's a lot to it. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I'm curious about how does it work everywhere? 
I guess it's kind of this question I keep coming back to because again, it, the Marine side's a little bit different because of it is this legal designation, which is, is pretty, pretty powerful in the sense that it, and it's such a very um, tangible because I'm, I'm coming from terrestrial side stuff. So, but when you have a situation in which, you know, how much does it rely on, you said like the t- planning and the time and the effort from the community to be able to put that into it. Is it replicable everywhere? And is it, or does it really rely on kind of have, finding those that the, having the leadership from within the community really push it forward? You've got to have the leadership. It's, it's heart driven, aloha aina mm. driven. You, you stake your life on it, feeling like this is our, yeah. this is our place, and we we are bound to protect it and care for it. It's that kind of kuleana. Mm-hmm. That is the heart of it. And a person like myself or organization that I work in, we bring the tools and practices that can augment that. So we're talking about planning, policy, science, communications, Yeah, mm-hmm. that tool bag. Yeah. Because there's so many complicated things involved in each one of those. We're attempting to, with our partners, to try to expand that community-based model to a regional model, mm-hmm. to an island-wide model. The, mm-hmm. the state is working on island by island plans through Holomua. So they're working on a, a Maui wide plan. We're working with part of half dozen community based partners in East Maui and the Maui Nui Makai network to do a regional plan for East Maui that's led by those communities and by their local and traditional and experiential knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, what are the problems? What are those species? Yeah. How has it changed? And right. For East Maui, the the top species is um, that where people have seen the most change and have the most care, that's Spinopihi. Okay, tell us, like, what was it before and what what about now? In the past, the way I've I've heard people describe the abundance, the abundance of Opihi is Opihi on top of Opihi that you can see in the the pink rock zone where you see all that pink crustose coral and algae from afar. You look down on that zone and you can see all the dark spots. Yeah. You see all the creatures that live with the opihi, like the haui ui, and some other places called haui haukiuki, or the that purple helmet urchin. And then you see all the different snails that live in that environment, and then all the different lemurs that are in that environment. You would see both a healthy environment with all the different constituents, and then you would but you also see opihi of all different sizes, and then that kind of density and abundance where they're just piling up on top of each other. So that that's the kind of the vision of success, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Abundance. We've talked about abundance quite a yeah. bit. That's yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking to TNC's reach, you know, with Palmyra, because that was, that was really sort of like the apex marine sort of system that when I was working mm-hmm. there, Emily, that was just added to the portfolio. <laughs> You know, like there were those of us in terrestrial were like, what? We're taking on this other thing. Like, (laughs) where is this place? Why are we doing this? And it was like, well, it's really the example of what what, you know, Marine can look like if if you know, not over overfish, over extracted. So maybe you could like paint the picture because that's a that's a place. And did you ever get to go to Palmyra? No. There's still time, Mom. There's still time. Sad ace. Four people I know who've gone. But yeah, I'd love for you to talk if you if you don't mind, talk about Palmyra and maybe compare contrast to Hawaiian Islands. Sure. Yeah. But let me just make a segue from the Opihi story. The kind of the place to compare 
um, Hawaiian island Opihi populations mm-hmm. is kind of across the island chain and up into the lower northwestern Hawaiian islands like Nihoa and uh, Mokumanamana. Mm-hmm. There's a, a Opihi monitoring partnership or intertidal monitoring partnership where folks are monitoring Opihi across all the islands. In the main Hawaiian islands, the highest density is on Hawaii Island because that's the lowest oh. ratio of people to appropriate habitat. Ideally, you have um, lava, right? Okay. Uh, basaltic shoreline. That's where the habitat is. So you've got the lowest number of people to miles of shoreline on Hawaii Island because it's all lava. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's really big. And then Oahu is the lowest, right? And then when you get up to the, the Nihoa and Necker, then the populations really change much more biomass per square area. And it's so it's really related to the harvest pressure, which is mm-hmm. kind of the population of the island. It's the way mm-hmm. you can measure that. Just in the way that to know whether fish on a reef, it's really tied to access. More urban areas, there's going to be less fish because more people fish there as mm-hmm. opposed to, say, a really remote area. Sure. Less people access it. Right. Okay, but right. to Palmyra, so Palmyra is an atoll and it doesn't have that same basalt shorelines, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about Opihi there, now we're talking about coral reef. Yeah, Palmyra is an amazing example of a re- resilient reef system that hasn't been so affected by ongoing human pressures, the kind of pressures we put on our reefs here mm-hmm. in Hawaii. In Hawaii, we our reefs are dealing with climate change, <laughs> Right. So that comes in the form mostly of uh, warming and bleaching, um, but acidification as well. And then they're also dealing with land-based sources of pollution and fishing, sewage, you know, wastewater, whatever form, wherever it may be coming from, and then sediment. Yeah. So imagine that. And then you've got just people fishing, right? So it's taking fish that do certain jobs on the reef off of the reef, like herbivores that eat Mm -hmm. algae. You know, the island was modified uh, in World War II, but then mostly after that, there's not so much human impact. Palmyra is a a model for reef resilience and island resilience. So Mm -hmm. uh, when the corals bleach there, they bounce back very quickly. Oh, interesting. There's a fantastic uh, research consortium and so much being learned there through that. So, uh, but there's also really exciting things happen on land. So it's a model for island resilience. So they're, you know, reestablishing the Pisonia forest there, which is the native um, island, you know, atoll forest ecosystem for that part of the Pacific. They've gotten rid of all the rats. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's incredible. Taking out the coconut palm plantation, which really made it so the Pisonia forest couldn't continue. So it's really an amazing place for not just for the lagoon species, for the outer reef species, but also for the um, seabird. It's an important rookery and uh, nesting and landing place for seabirds of all kinds. That sounds amazing. I mean, I'm not on the Palmyra team. I don't know all the details, but but they're using that location and that platform in the Pacific to work on commercial fisheries in the Pacific, helping to keep fads from becoming drift and ghost nets around the Pacific. Really a lot of innovative work, understanding how far some of those species travel. The manta rays, the the seabirds, the different species can go thousands of miles from Palmyra and then come back. So lots of science that's really informing conservation work in the Pacific. Hawaii's in the Pacific too. It's just that they're just a little further in to the Pacific. Yeah, they're really different places. Um, and I, I wanted to go back to you and ask you about, you know, diving, right? Because 
it was Chuck, my husband, who was like, oh, we got to get Anne on there too, because she was underwater in Maui for, well, you both were, are for so long. You had, um, you know, you took, you took people on dive tours, right? Is that right? Like around Maui? No, on Maui, my business was snorkel tours. I did. I did some scuba teaching, but my, and I, I made a choice long ago. If I was just one person and I didn't have a boat, my overhead was small and mm-hmm. worked because mm-hmm. I saw my friends with boats and I don't know how to fix a boat. So it, it was just a pragmatic decision. Just take people snorkeling off the shoreline. And that worked. And I did that for 30 years. So that worked very well. I did a lot of diving, but not like somebody like Ed Robinson or Pauline Fiennes, where they're in the water every day. Can we ask, you know, maybe we're in some of your favorite places. Are they secret? She can't tell us. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You don't have to. In the world or or Maui? Maui. Well, okay. Yeah. Then the world. Save Maui first. Yeah. Yeah. I'll start with Maui and then where else? I was thinking about this because it was on your list. Yeah. But I really, my favorite place is Honolulu Bay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank goodness it was a marine conservation area mm-hmm. because it's it's big. It's a big mm-hmm. area with lots of different aspects to the reef. And they've got the channel in the middle. And there's a fast channel going along outside. It's away from heavy habitation. Right. Uh-huh. Not a lot of people that live around Honolulu Bay, at least I diving there. I mean, I, I came down with rheumatoid arthritis about 10 years ago, and then I kind of had to curtail my activity. So the information in my head is is farther back. But there, that was a place where the Akuli would come. Huge schools of Akuli would come in every summer, and then the Akuli boat and fish them. But that was legal, and that was fine because there was lots, and they didn't just live there. They they migrated through. Right. Okay. One year there was a bunch of tiger sharks in there because some Akuli fishermen had gotten to my way I heard the story had gotten too many in his net. They got squished and the net opened. Oh boy. And then ran and they <laughs> ran into Honolulu Bay and somehow the tiger sharks passed a message around. Oh. So there's the yeah, free food. Yeah. <laughs> and you could go on the hill and look down and see twelve foot tiger sharks in there. Wow. For a few days. And then when they cleaned it up, they're gone. Wow. It's quite unbelievable. A, a really good, a really wonderful environment. And then it, you could go around the point, and then you're in Mokalaia Bay, which is also slaughterhouse. So it's it's a big area for a person just snorkeling along. And I must have been there a thousand times over many years. And on the right side, you always had your holy holy schools. And in the summer, if when the Akuli came, then you could get giant barracuda praying on them, and it was just wonderful. But I don't know what it's like now. Have either of you seen been in the water and seen tigers ever? Not, not, not I haven't. Okay, I'm just curious. I, I never <laughs> have. I hope I never will. <laughs> I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> but I, you know, reef sharks are fun and amazing. I love seeing, love them. They probably have seen you, Melissa. I'm They're sure, <laughs> guaranteed. I've been in the water with them. I've just never seen one. What about you, Emily? Have you? Oh, not in the water. I, you know, growing up in Hawaii, we're we're taught to be afraid. Of, you know cautiously afraid of sharks right i mean when when i was growing up surfing you know my friends would always say you don't wear any jewelry don't wear anything that flashes that's going to attract a shark mm-hmm. no it's, yeah so terrified to see a shark in the water except for like you said the cute the cute the small sharks that aren't, <laughs> that yeah. aren't gonna attack you hopefully yeah um, but when during the pandemic, we were doing, uh, we worked with a partner, Mark Dikos, to do um, drone surveys of Honolulu Bay uh, when there was no people. 
mm-hmm. in the Bay to see if we could get some kind of comparison to how wildlife was using the Bay. Oh, so yeah. Looking at spinner dolphins, sea turtles, everything that you could see from a drone. Mm-hmm. And one of those things was sharks. We'd pick up sharks, you know, a tiger shark swimming through, 12, 12 foot tigers swimming through the Bay. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Maui is really known for tigers. Yes. For sharks. Personally, I think it's tied to, um, because Kamohoali'i, that's the brother of Pele and, and many other people, he winds up making his home on, on Maui and Koholawe. So if you look at the statistics for shark attacks in, in, in Hawaii, the uh, Maui is always at the top. Interesting. It's always in that zone, you know, yes. or it's just <laughs> he, like... He tops the list and then it goes down from there. Makena. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I have a question through your, when you're like doing your snorkeling business, I mean, just curious how much you were able to kind of distinguish yourself using the natural history. Like, did you actually attract folks who were like, came for that? Yes. Natural history field trip is, grew to be a big thing. I mean, worldwide, people sign up yeah. for certain companies because they want to learn something. And so yeah. I would those people. So I always got really lovely people and they were so interested in learning. I remember that first time that I looked through his face mask and I saw this whole other world and I got to be the person to let other people have that experience which is just a mind-blowing experience so I I always enjoyed what I did a lot yeah I don't remember mine but like I when you were talking about that earlier I just had this vision of my daughters you know they're eight and eleven and I'd have that it's like burned in my memory the first time they actually figured it out dunked their head on how to do it <laughs> it's like whoa yeah, that's the perfect age for kids. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to get a mask of my grandson. Yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about changes. And I know there's a lot of um, unfortunate changes, you know, in the marine world mm-hmm. as are in terrestrial. I mean, could you maybe either of you or both of you just summarize what you've seen and maybe some, I don't know, positive things? I mean, you certainly talked about, you know, the con- on the conservation and, you know, how communities are protecting their resources more, but it's amidst this global situation. With Right. If we just think about Maui, when we moved to Maui in 1979, there was about 70,000 people on the island. Yeah. And today, so it's, it's, it's more than doubled, but not that much more than doubled, but the number of visitors has, oh, yeah. has been an exponential rise, right? Yeah. So I think the changes, you know, coastal development and near coastal development uh, increases and then uh, access deer population has deer were, you know, introduced, I think, in the 50s. But, you know, now that population has exploded. Yeah. Um, fires, drought, sea surface mm-hmm. temperatures, large scale agriculture of pineapple and, and sugar stopped. Right. So I think those are the big physical. Those are really, really big physical changes. Yeah. <laughs> the ocean temperature, sea surface temperature really started warming in 2014 and corals really started paling. It's just that added stress to that sedimentation to mm-hmm. yeah. the, wa- the wastewater pollution. It depends on the area of the island, of, of any of our islands, where that source of pollution is coming from and what causes it. So kind of the devil's in the detail there, but it's that kind of cumulative multiple stresses. Yeah. That have, and so places where you don't have those, where all, where those stresses are more controlled. And sunscreen is another one. It depends. Sunscreen can be a real problem for places that get a lot of people jumping in the in a concentrated area with sunscreen on kind of reliably, like a Waikiki. <laughs> like a Waikiki. Yeah. Exactly. If you look at large reef tracts, that's not 
the primary threat, but maybe for a small concentrated area, mm-hmm. it can be a, be a real stressor on the reef. You know, one place we haven't talked about that Emily was involved with is uh, Hihikinau. So that natural area reserve is one of those places where a lot of those stressors are not so much of a factor. Mm-hmm. So um, because the natural area reserve is, um, it was designated in 1972 or three, it's the only one in the state that protects both land and um, underwater resources. It goes out to a certain depth, about 120 feet. So the reef is protected, the NK line pools are protected, this neo-geo aeolian landscape, which is this kind of new lava landscape that has all kinds of cool indigenous native critters on it, and the source vent, that Kalua Olapa, which is the vent where the, um, the lava came from that created that peninsula. Just only on the edge, there might there might be some houses that might have some cesspool but it's not all along the shoreline, so you don't have as much. You didn't have sedimentation for the longest time. Now there's a little bit of sediment coming into Kaneoio Bay, which is also called La Perouse Bay. But the big thing was when it got closed off and people who read the guidebook weren't all over the lava flow. Yeah, there was a lot of impacts from people that on the, on the land side, but when you mm-hmm. um, look at the marine ecosystems and poaching, um, illegal fishing, you know, taking fish out of the reserve where it's a no-take reserve. There's also no motorized vessels in that reserve, so you don't have, you know, a lot of those stressors from people are alleviated. And there's people down there watching. So what happened when coral bleaching hit us for the first time in the main Hawaiian Islands, corals bleached there, but they, they were able to rebound back much faster and more fully than many other ecosystems. For example, if you go to Ahihi today, which is in a in Ahihi Bay, maybe this is what eight years later, you'll see that all the coral has grown back. You can't tell that there was ever a kind of a mass wow. bleaching event there. If you go to Oluwalu, which is another um, you know incredible reef, you can see that where corals had died, they were overcome by algae. Okay, you don't see that full recovery. I see. It's species relevant. Okay. When it grows fast, the cauliflower coral, it comes back fast. And out of Olawalu is mostly the um, parietes, the big head. Parietes lobata. Yeah, and that's slow. Mm-hmm. That's true, but there's a most of the coral at Ahihi Kinao is, is parietes lobata. Most, most of the corals in Hawaii are. They're these massive structure forming corals. You can really tell the difference because there's more land-based stressors on the reef at Ahihi. Which is, that's like good news. <laughs> I mean, in the big yeah. picture, because it links back to things that we can have some local control over. Exactly. Always think about this because Guam, for example, like there, that was from way back. They were like, it's the land based things. This is what we can do about it. And so their whole, because the fire programs that are started there were all funded by NOAA. It's really funny, right? Like, so the, the fire outreach and education is for, was for marine conservation from the get go. And I mean, I think people make the connection, but it's been a little bit of uh, still disconnected here. The big one was really uh, Kauai High 2015, they had that big fire. And then there was this flood event and the um, South Kohala Coastal Partnership. Kohala Coastal Partnership was really like that kind of, whoa, right. <laughs> These places are connected and you can't can't really treat them separately. Another um, thing that Ahihikina'u has going for it is that there's more herbivores, because it's protected from fishing, there's more herbivores there. So then they're keeping up with that algal growth. So they keep it off the... 
That's so cool. <laughs> I will say that just the general, quote unquote, general public, so inundated with so much like doom and gloom as it relates to like fish and fisheries and all of that. And then mm-hmm. to know that there's really positive, you know, stories out there and that we have agency in this situation for, for many things is really, I think, wonderful. Yeah, and these systems can recover and there's mm-hmm. there's stress as part of, you know, to some degree we have to it's, we're just, this stuff's going to get thrown at us, but what is within our capacity to actually, you know, adapt? That's the whole climate adaptation and all that. Well, then where, where I get less optimistic is just that, okay, we can point to these areas that are working and then it's resilient, but then the actual like will to invest, if it's reforestation, whatever those actions we have to take, right, to minimize the point-based pollution and sedimentation and things like that. It's And, you know, again, not like to come back to the uh, sad subject, but, you know, from the fire perspective coming in, I think it's going to be a big change. I mean, it has to be right. Because, and unfortunately it took something like Lahaina to like, for people to realize at least to start paying attention to the fact that, Oh, this is also something that's within our control to prevent and to reduce risk. Like we can, we can actually take action to do things. Sorry to leave it. No, <laughs> you're going to put down the fire bomb and then walk away. <laughs> right. No, I can't. I can't. <laughs> well, that, I mean, and I don't even want to go there because honestly, like the, the mess that that's created, obviously the people, that's the first and then heaviest loss and then yeah. all of their things. But the mess, I was just talking with a colleague today earlier about this of when the sudden urgency around doing something. I think everyone has that sense of like, oh my God, like we got to do something, we got to do something. And then, you know, you really hit a wall with what are we able to do? And, you know, the, the cleanup, I mean, just the level and the degree of complexity and the imp- what the mess that this created is really, I think, stretching people's, um, you know, lived experience. Yeah. Lived experience, capacities and imagination. It's, yeah. um, and, you know, lots of technologies like bioremediation, you know, they may be out there and ready to go at some scale, but people are really struggling with kind of the existing systems. Yeah. yeah. What's possible under the existing systems and yeah. then what better for us yeah. right. to do at not not easy is we're having to reinvent our society as as Lahaina is doing. It's reinventing Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. I think the lessons that we're going to take from this are, I mean, they're, they're happening right now. It's like kind of farther down the road about what, what does it look like? Like recovery? I mean, all of these things, totally. Well, and in Kula, I mean, so much pain and, and ongoing suffering in Lahaina and, you know, and so many people helping. I mean, and yeah. that, that's really met by this tremendous outpouring of love and support. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then in Kula, we're seeing that people actually coming together and creating a partnership and alliance yeah. to, to claim the land and heal the land there. Mm-hmm. So much positive is, is coming out of that. You know, our electric company rethinking of how they're going to, um, where, where they're going to invest in improving our electrical grid. Yeah. So yeah, it's really sad that that's what it took to mobilize society, even though our society, even though there was lots of warning flags uh, before. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Lots of warning (laughs) flags. And also, I mean, you know, we've talked about this a lot just in the past set of interviews, but just that it is linked back to this struggle or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But like the realization, the warning flags were beyond just fire risk, like just that, that what's working and what doesn't. And I think when you have this event and then you see how people do know what to do, like at a fundamental mm-hmm. level, how to take mm-hmm. care of each other, how to take care mm-hmm. of this place. Um, it's just more that wake up call to like, 
wow, we're not supporting this. Like on an average, and you know, it takes an event like this for people to kind of create those spaces to, to do that kind of work. And yeah. yeah. Well, I can tie it back to your interview with Bob Hobdi, where he talked about when he was the forestry manager on Maui, he was responding most often to the spire in West Maui that started in uh, when the high winds would come, mm-hmm. it would uh, spark the, however that fire got started, maybe electrical grid that started mm-hmm. kind of uh, just past Waikapu. Mm-hmm. Yep. That fire wraps around from Maalaya, um, Ukumehame, Oluwalu. And there's this whole fire hot spot in that part of the island. Mm-hmm. And so he talked about that. And I remember as as a kid, he would, you know, he'd get a call to a fire, the phone would ring, and off he'd go and, and be, you know, dumping those buckets of water on the fires from the helicopters. And mm-hmm. we'd always hear, hear these fire stories. But what really struck me about his interview is that that was the hot spot for him. And it was in his time that in that position. And then, and today, up until very recently, that's still been a hot spot for DOFA. Yeah. Right. They identified that hot spot, the staff there at that a particular place where the electrical grid was crossing the landscape as a hot spot and worked with Miko to bring down the risk there by removing all the vegetation around mm-hmm. this sort of high risk area. And every time the high wind comes now and we're we're waiting for that fire to start again and it hasn't for the last few right. years and that's a real real win for and, th- and that wasn't easy right because yeah. yeah people aren't necessarily caring about these barren quote <laughs> barren unquote landscapes burning but those landscapes that are Ukumehame and Oluwalu are above some of our biggest and best reefs in the state. Yeah. So Ma'alaya is a reef that in the 1970s, um, scientists called it the most biodiverse reef in the state. It was like wow. they were blown away by it. If you read the report, Dr. Bob Kinsey was the lead author of that report. And now that reef is has really been diminished because of land-based pollution. Mm-hmm. So you just go around the corner towards Lahaina to the Oluwalu Reef, and that's mm-hmm. one of the largest reefs uh, reef tracks in Hawaii in the main Hawaiian Islands. It's almost a thousand acres, and it kind of starts in that Pali area and goes all the way just past that Oluwalu Peninsula. And it's, and the reason why these big reef tracks matter is because they're making more larvae, there's more diversity, right. there's more species, and they're exporting mm-hmm. that larvae to other reefs that are down current from them. And that's really been proven at, at Oluwalu by USGS scientists and others. But trying to get a handle on the fire deer cycle is the source of a really great partnership that's beginning there. Mm-hmm. And is benefiting from big investments, federal investment through those big climate bills recently. So hopefully we get infusion of cash for those particular watersheds. So grants applications have been put in and partnerships have been built. And NOAA has invested heavily with us there at reducing sediment. So our scientists Mm -hmm. have worked really hard to find the sources of the sediment, what processes are are causing it. And so that's how these partnerships have been built. And Yeah, we definitely need to prioritize where you're going to intervene, right? I mean, there's so much... There's so exactly. much work. But it's also really like heartening to re- recognize that DLNR had re- realized from a long time ago that this was the place they needed to invest yeah. and that yeah. not only them, but others, you know, mm-hmm. in the community. So that that's like longstanding. And that's the result, as you said, of a lot of work and a long term commitment to that place. Yeah. I mean, I love that part about talking with Bob of just to because mm-hmm. we, you know, 
I've got some cool feedback from younger folks in that field that listen to this. And it's just so encouraging. I mean, it may be depressing on one side, but just encouraging to think about the, how these problems are not new, right? No. That they're, they're, they're a lot of experience and, and time has gone into fixing them. And we, you know, we're, we're getting better. <laughs> we may need to do more, but we're getting better. <laughs> we need to do more. And the problems uh, the intensity and the frequency of those problems have increased, right? Right. Yeah. All right, of, right. All of yeah. it <laughs> happening at the same time. Well, ladies, you both have been wonderful. I wonder if there are any last thoughts from either one of you on, on your work, on the direction, you know, um, of your work or that of others and your colleagues or what you'd like to see or anything at all in closing. Just glad Emily's out there fighting the good fight. Yeah. We are too. I was thinking before because Emily was four when we moved to Hawaii. So she went to local schools until high school when she went to Seabrook. So she, I always thought of her, and I would tell her this, she's a bridge person. She's based by being with me and Bob or me and Mel. She's science-based, but then you grow up here and you get the cultural side. And I liked one of the things with the HANA folks and the OPE folks, I think because she had respect for culture and respect for science, that she brought together Chris Bird, the um, geneticist who worked on Opihi and the Opihi fishermen, mm -hmm. and they could talk to each other. And that's like Uncle Mac and uh, Dr. Friedlander having respect for each other and trying to learn from each other and, and do better. I think Emily brings that to her work, which is very important, seeing both. Mom sounds proud. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's really cool in Hawaii today, 2020, four, I almost said 23, but is the community that has built around our aspirations to reclaim our, our natural ecosystems and our, and our way of life. And that it's a network, right? It's mm -hmm. it, uh, people are working in all kinds of places in all kinds of ways um, that make sense to them. And with all kinds of supporting um, organizations, it's this vast network that's we may not even know each other, but um, lots of organizations are are working. It's just all of this work, and there's just the groundswell. There is. Yeah. So, it, it's amazing. It for terrestrial and and marine conservation, it's very hard to name it. It's a very different landscape than it was 20 years ago. The level of caring, the sense of kuleana, being able to take action yeah. to rebuild both um, natural and cultural systems. It's, it's tremendous. It is tremendous. I was just talking about this exact thing with um, Lisa Hadway of Spain, you know, who was briefly the head of DLNR or, or yeah. Division of yeah. Forestry and Wildlife. And, you know, she reminded us that 20 years ago, kids didn't know what Palila were. They didn't know what mm -hmm. Eevee were. You, There were right. a handful of people that knew those birds or knew what they were. And now you have Hawaiian students speaking Alelo Hawaii and they know the birds. And I mean, it's totally, it is different now. Yeah. And it's because of everyone's efforts together to mm -hmm. build our, our local capacity, to provide opportunities. And we're a huge network all moving in the same direction and, and really honoring the people from their places, honoring places, yeah, honoring all yeah. of these the local and Hawaiian communities that they should be in the lead. Yeah. It's not all always the case for every conservation effort. It doesn't need to be, but that trying to right some of the our historical wrongs as a society yeah. is really awesome. It is. Well, I can't think of a better way to end. <laughs> That's beautiful. It's a sentiment, Emily and Anne. Mahalo Nui Loa for coming on our show. 
It's been a, such a delight to hear about all of this incredible work. Marine is not my area at all. So Mm-mm. I'm always like delighted to hear from folks and to hear, you know, the intricacies of what management like is like, because I had no idea up until just this interview, listening to you about, you know, what that, what's involved. You sort of know on a very, like for me on a general level, yeah. but not the specific. Totally. Our places to be able to talk about and le- learn about and listen to places. And then so much fun to have the family, you guys yeah. together. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Come, come to Maui. Let's go snorkeling. I know. Yeah. We'll be back. Mm-hmm.